0: Support for WPR comes from the Wisconsin Wetlands Association, celebrating American Wetlands Month, and the Clean Water, Resilient Communities, and Wildlife Habitat made possible by wetlands. WisconsinWetlands.org. Support for WPR comes from Wills on behalf of Wisconsin Public Libraries, offering access to eBooks, audiobooks, digital magazines, and more, available with a Wisconsin Library Card at WisconsinsDigitalLibrary.org. What are the keys to well-being? And what is the difference between well-being and happiness? In the hour to come during University of the Air, Richard Davidson, professor of psychology and psychiatry at the UW-Madison, will describe each of the four components to well-being derived from studies of the physiological effects of each. He'll tell us how awareness of the moment at hand, connectedness, A sense of self and a sense of direction in life can lead to a longer, healthier, and more fulfilling life. I'm Norman Gilliland. Join Richard Davidson and me for insights into well-being next on University of the Air, here on the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When he wrote the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson emphasized the pursuit of happiness. Happiness can mean different things to different people, but it turns out that happiness can be measured, and that means that ways of achieving happiness can be identified. What are the keys to happiness? I'm Norman Gilliland. This is University of the Air. With me is Richard Davidson, professor of psychology and psychiatry at UW-Madison and author of various books, including The Emotional Life of Your Brain and Adaptability, a Primer. He is also the founder and director of the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And it's been a long time, but welcome back to University of the Air.
1: Thank you so much, Norman. It's great to be here.
0: I'm... Reminded of another president, having mentioned Thomas Jefferson, and that would be the one who said most folks are as happy as they make up their minds to be, Abraham <laughs> Lincoln, from the get-go. Does that uh, hold water for you?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, one of the things that we've learned is that uh, enduring happiness uh, in contrast to what we might call phasic or transient happiness is very much connected to skills that we can develop in our own mind, and that enduring happiness is not fundamentally dependent on external circumstances. Now, this is not to say that external circumstances aren't important, and uh, there's overwhelming evidence to show that uh, people who are impoverished and who really – uh, don't, don't have sufficient resources to live uh, a reasonable life uh, will uh, take a hit on their happiness, so to speak. But beyond a certain level uh, of material um, uh, wealth, uh, enduring happiness is more a product of uh, attributes that we can cultivate in our own mind.
0: So, for example, a person of great wealth – might well be unhappy if that great wealth is not enough.
1: Yeah, and actually there have been empirical studies of lottery winners who have won enormous sums of money, and if all it took was money, you'd expect them to uh, have enduring levels of happiness, but in fact they don't. And what you see with lottery winners is that there's a transient increase in happiness, But it comes right back to baseline, and in fact, in many cases, it dips below baseline. uh, uh, And so uh, uh, that's one of many different data points to show that um, material wealth in itself is insufficient for enduring happiness.
0: When you mention a baseline, is that kind of like a set point that some people are just inherently happier than others?
1: Yeah, I, I would be careful with the word inherently. Some people are happier than others. Um but uh, uh and there's no question that there are some genetic contributions to this, but uh uh it doesn't mean that a person's happiness set point can't be shifted. All of the evidence that we have in hand indicates that it indeed can be. Uh and so uh we have developed a framework uh, uh, in our center for understanding what we call the plasticity of happiness, or the we we actually prefer uh, a, another term. We don't call it happiness. We call it well-being or flourishing, because um, it's really not about being happy all the time. If if you uh, were to lose a loved one, uh, it would be inappropriate for you to be happy in response in the to sense that. Sense of cheerful. Yeah, to that loss, it's completely appropriate uh, and adaptive to express sadness. Uh, where it gets problematic is if it were uh, if you are expressing sadness um, for a prolonged period of time that was um, deleterious to one's activities of daily living. Uh, but uh, um, you know, a person with very high levels of well-being can be sad. Uh, And it would be completely appropriate for them to be sad in response to certain kinds of challenges. And so it's really – we prefer the term well-being or flourishing uh, rather than happiness.
0: And you have uh, long since, I think, identified what might be called four or five pillars of well-being.
1: Yeah. So we – this is a relatively recent framework uh, uh, in our center. We – published this in 2020 in an article that we call The Plasticity of Well-Being. And these are four key pillars uh, that uh, are uh, occupy a very special place in a Venn diagram that includes scientific research um, uh, as well as contemplative literature showing that these uh, are attributes that are critical or fundamental for well-being or flourishing. And the third piece to this Venn diagram is that they are trainable skills. Uh, And so we look to uh, identify the core components that meet each of those three requirements, that they are present in the contemplative literature. They're present in modern science. There's an empirical corpus, and there's evidence that they are trainable. Uh, and so we've come up with four, and those four are awareness, which is where mindfulness would be, uh, and it includes the capacity for self-awareness. Uh, it also includes the capacity that we scientists call meta-awareness, which is super important. And meta-awareness is knowing what your mind is doing. And some people might think that that's a little strange. Don't we always know what our mind is doing? And here I can remind listeners uh, of a common experience, I think, and we can ask how many listeners may have had this experience of reading a book where you might be reading each word on a page And you read one page, you read another page, and after a few minutes, you have absolutely no idea what you've just read. Your mind is lost. It's somewhere else. The moment you recognize that is a moment of meta-awareness. It's a moment of awakening. And it turns out that we can train that. Uh, And uh, we believe that meta-awareness is a necessary attribute for all other forms of personal transformation because if we're not aware of what's going on in our mind, how can we transform it? It's it makes the uh, the capacity to transform much more difficult. So that's the first pillar. The second pillar we call connection. Connection is about the qualities that are important for healthy social relationships. Qualities like appreciation, gratitude, kindness, compassion, empathy. All of those are part of connection. Um, the fourth, the third pillar we call insight. And insight is uh, a curiosity-driven knowledge of the narrative that we all carry around about ourselves. We all have this narrative. It's what human minds do. We create this narrative. Kind of how we identify ourselves in the context of the world. How we identify ourselves and our beliefs and expectations of ourselves. And so, for example, there are some people who have – really negative beliefs about themselves and have low expectations of themselves. And we know that that is a prescription for depression. Uh, And what's important for well-being initially is not so much changing the narrative, but it's changing our relationship to the narrative so that we can see the narrative for what it is, which is really a constellation of thoughts Uh, It's a set of thoughts and beliefs about ourselves. And if we can see that, we can get some distance from it. And it loosens its grip so that we're not completely merged with those beliefs and expectations, but we can see them as beliefs and expectations.
0: So to see oneself from outside, I mean, some people are said to have that ability – more than others to the extent that they refer to themselves in the third person.
1: Exactly. And one of the little exercises we often give to people who may have a little bit of a challenge in appreciating this pillar is imagine some difficult situation that you've been in recently. And imagine if you approach that situation with a different set of beliefs and expectations. Um, and and just imagine how things might have unfolded differently Uh, if you came to that with a different set of beliefs and expectations. Uh, uh, And it just helps to uh, take you out of your ordinary, your standard beliefs and expectations, and try on a different um, set of beliefs and expectations. And and you can feel very quickly how the um, beliefs and expectations that we all have literally shape our experience of the world. They literally define the reality in which we live.
0: Would that be related to to empathy then where you could perhaps even, let's say you're in a sporting event rooting for your team and then you start to understand what the other team is going through?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it is definitely related to empathy. And, and then the last pillar of well-being, just to put all four – on the table is purpose. And purpose is about finding our kind of true north in life. Um, And it's not so much about finding something more purposeful to do, so to speak, but how can we derive meaning and purpose from that which we are already doing, including some of the pedestrian activities of daily living. So um, can you envision Uh, that taking out the garbage is intimately connected to your sense of purpose. And of course it can be. It simply requires a little bit of reframing. But with a little bit of training, we can literally have everything we do Um, be deeply connected in in an authentic way with our core values and sense of purpose.
0: I can't wait to get back to taking out the garbage and see how we can make that (laughs) fit in. I can almost see it, but I haven't quite grasped it yet, Your
1: wife will thank me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) She she will indeed. Well, let's uh, look more closely at each of those four pillars. And before we do that, though, I wanted to ask about one that sometimes you see as a fifth in conjunction with those, and maybe it overlaps with all of them. I don't know, but the whole – physical aspect of well-being?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, we uh, make a distinction between when we talk about the physical aspect of well-being, we're really talking about the body and our health. Um, And uh, we believe that that our psychological well-being and our physical well-being are intimately connected, but they're not the same. Uh, There is really good epidemiological research that indicates that when you look at large population-based studies, on average, people who are reporting higher levels of well-being are also physically healthier. Now, this does not mean it's true for everyone, but if you uh, take a group of 50,000 people and you look on average, this is what you see. But it leads to the conjecture And here there is less evidence, but it is certainly there's some evidence, and it's growing. And the conjecture is that when we cultivate psychological well-being, we actually become physically healthier. So they
0: almost kind of like reflect off of each other.
1: Exactly. And there's bidirectional communication between the mind and the body. It's not only the mind uh, sort of instructing the body, but we also know that there's feedback from the body – that influences the state of the mind.
0: From what you have already said about awareness, I'm guessing you're not a big fan of multitasking.
1: Well, actually, the data show that multitasking doesn't exist. Really? Yeah. Oh, because you're
0: hopping back and forth from one to the other? Yeah,
1: at least in almost all cases. Um, I mean, there are some very special cases where it can be demonstrated. But for most ordinary people, when they say they're multitasking, what they're doing is rapidly shifting among tasks, and the the, um, the consequence is that they are the, the, their performance is compromised typically in both their do, in, in in both domains, and so uh, yeah, I would definitely not recommend it unless it were necessary in a particular situation.
0: I would guess that that multitasking, in addition to being an inefficient thing in the long run, is also a little bit more stressful.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, 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 there are resources in the mind and the brain that are required to uh, shift and adjudicate among the various tasks that are being um, uh, uh, activated. So, yeah, uh, there is a, a cost to trying to multitask.
0: I uh, think of multitasking occasionally when I see pictures of a two-year-old in preschool – with a little smile on his face, working at fitting some pegs or sticking a couple of things together. And I'm thinking, how nice, because he's solely concentrating on that task and he looks so kind of serene and happy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a wonderful observation. And, uh, you know, in addition to the fiscal deficit we have in our country, we also suffer from an attention deficit. Uh, and uh, uh, and it's not just people who are diagnosed with ADHD. Uh, I think if we're honest with ourselves, all of us uh, are at least um, somewhat compromised. And actually, there's good evidence to suggest um, that there was a, a, a study done not too long ago that tested a cohort of uh, teens on a standard standardized measures of attention that have been around for quite some time uh, objective measures not self-report measures and they were compared to a cohort that was tested 50 years ago same age uh, and the co and, and they tried to do a very careful job of matching these kids on the socioeconomic status of their families and so forth and the bottom line in this research is that the kids today perform significantly worse than the kids 50 years ago. And, of course, we don't know exactly why. Uh, um, you know, there are many things that have changed. But the big thing that's changed is the availability of the Internet and social media and the rapidity with which uh, we are exposed to information um, uh, and uh uh, and and that, I think, is really taking a toll. Uh, and so we really do have a serious problem with distractibility, and it is um, having a really pernicious consequence. Um, there's one other study that's worth mentioning for viewers. This was now published uh, about um, 12 or 13 years ago. It involved around 3,500 participants from – several different parts of the world. It wasn't just the United States. And um, with people's permission, they were texted uh, on their smartphones several times a day, and they were asked three questions each time they were texted. The first question is, what are you doing right now? And they checked off from a list of activities. The second question is, where is your mind right now? Is it focused on what you're doing, or is it focused elsewhere? And the third question is, right at this moment, how happy or unhappy are you? And they used a slider scale to indicate their level of transient happiness. So here's what they found. Um, the average adult spends 47% of her, his waking life, not paying attention to what they're doing. 47% of the time.
0: That's pretty scary if you're on the highway.
1: Pretty scary. It's, it's kind of remarkable. The second finding is when people reported that they weren't paying attention to what they're doing, they were significantly less happy. Even if what they were doing was ostensibly boring, this goes back to your comment about the kids. Even if what they were doing was washing the dishes um, or doing their laundry, if they were distracted, they were significantly less happy.
0: When we get to awareness – the way to be happy or well-adjusted is to, whatever that task is, concentrate on that and not think about what you have to do tomorrow at a presentation or even what you'd rather be doing right now. How do uh, video games tie into this shrinking attention span, if that's uh the same kind of phenomenon we're talking about.
1: Yeah, it's the same kind of phenomenon. I mean, uh, video games are... There's no simple answer because it depends on the video game. There's actually some evidence that certain kinds of video games might strengthen attention. They're not all bad. Uh, um, Some are bad, but not all are bad. So, uh, you know, I think it really depends. Um, And, you know, there's... Another important element here, and that is that you know in our view and in the kind of work we've done, it's important not to fight with your mind um, because that doesn't really work uh, and so if your mind is really being distracted, you know trying to sort of fight with your mind and pull it back may not be always the best strategy. So if you find that you're thinking about um, uh, something else, maybe take a pause from the task that you were originally going to do, and devote all your attention to thinking about whatever it is that you're thinking about, rather than trying to fight with the mind. Um, In the the beginning stages of this kind of skill development, uh, it's really important to uh, be gentle with your mind, because if you try to fight with your mind, you're going to lose. (laughs) Uh, I I would say
0: that seems inevitable. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Let's look at the phenomenon of connection and well-being when we return in a moment. This is University of the Air. I'm Norman Gilliland, back with Richard Davidson. We're looking at what may be called the four pillars of well-being, the pillar that we looked at first being awareness and now connection. Does that mean primarily your context with your surroundings and particularly other people?
1: Well, you know, you can still be lonely and be around a lot of people. Uh, and so uh, loneliness is really something that is more internal. Uh, during COVID, when people were uh, having very little social intera- interaction, there were some people that were still very socially connected um in their experience even though they weren't physically with a lot of people so i mean
0: they were remembering connections or they were somehow working around covid to stay connected
1: no they were remembering connection they were using telephone or um uh, uh other um uh, video calling to establish connection uh they were Um, bringing their loved ones into their mind and heart uh, on a regular basis. Uh, And so they experience the world as being more connected. But this is a huge problem. And as we were talking before the show began, uh, the Surgeon General of the United States, Vivek Murthy, uh, just yesterday issued a health advisory. Uh, And the health advisory was an advisory for uh, around loneliness. Uh, and um, I believe that this is the first time in American history that a public health official has ever issued an advisory concerning loneliness. Do you think
0: that was an outgrowth uh, of the COVID experience?
1: In part, it was an out, outgrowth, but uh, uh, and but the trends were present before COVID. Uh, and in a recent survey that was done here in the United States, seventy-six percent of adults. Reported themselves to be either moderately or significantly lonely. Seventy-six percent. Seventy-six percent. Yeah. So it's um, it really is epidemic kind of proportions. And what may be even more surprising to listeners, um, and I'll just you know give one of several facts uh, about this. We were talking earlier about the important connections between uh, psychological well-being and physical health. It turns out that loneliness is greater than twofold the risk factor for mortality than is obesity.
0: That's a remarkable, largely till now, intangible phenomenon.
1: Yeah. And so this just underscores the fact that these are qualities that, if you will, get under the skin and affect our biology in ways that are seriously consequential for our health. Uh, And so this is why the Surgeon General has taken this on as, in my view, as a very legitimate public health issue.
0: To do what about?
1: Well, you know, there, there are actually, if you go to the report, the report was just issued yesterday, and it's a long report. It's Um, I think it's close to 100 pages. I have not read the whole report yet. Um, But he does have, I think, six or seven very specific recommendations about what you can do to help uh, address this epidemic. Um, One of them is volunteering. Uh, We hear that. And um uh, and I think that's a you know it's a great suggestion, and there's really good scientific evidence to show that. In fact, um, let me just share a, a little sidebar with you, a phenomenal study that a group of scientists at Johns Hopkins University uh, have been doing uh, um, in a project with um, that involves both elderly folks as well as young children. And so the way they did it is this. Um, the, there is a, a, a critical shortage of staff in public schools. Uh, and what they did is they recruited grandmas um, who were retired and who, uh, in this case, um, th- these were recruited from basically the ghettos of Baltimore. Um, they were very low income. Uh, and they had many health problems. Uh, they, on average, they were obese. Uh, and what they did is they had them volunteer in schools um, and, uh, and, and, you know, helped in the lunchroom with the kids, did just all kinds of things. And what they found is a dramatic cascade of beneficial effects. First of all, this improves social connection. Um, secondly... It gets them out of the house and gets them moving, um, and simply taking more steps, going up and you know these are public schools that do not have elevators, um, and so they have to go up and down stairs. Uh, um, uh, so there's just all of these factors which um, come together in this unique kind of intervention, and it. Does this turn-
0: apply to the – Sorry, to the children too.
1: Well the the kids these benefits yeah, the kids i mean it's been it was shown that the kids benefit from having these grandmas as um, in some sense extended caregivers um, who really take an interest in them because the schools are sho- so short staffed um, they don 't have adults who really ask about the lives of the kids and check in with them uh, just about how things are going. Uh, and so the, the cascade of benefit is enormous. And actually, the scientists at Johns Hopkins studied the impact of this on, primarily on the grandmas um, and, you know, found remarkable benefit in terms of their physical health. They found changes in the brain. They actually did MRI scans and found that um, uh, they actually had um, uh, changes in their brain that were conducive to better brain health and less age-related neurodegeneration. Um, So, uh, you know, this is just one of several things that we can do to address uh, this crisis of social connection and loneliness. This
0: may be a sidebar, but uh, is it healthier to have a mix of age groups together in a situation like that I'm thinking, for example, is it healthier to have nothing but college-age kids with college-age kids, nothing but retirees with retirees, or is it better to have them intermingle?
1: Yeah, I don't – you know, it's a great question, Norman. I don't know the science on this. I'm sure there is some science around it. My conjecture is that it would certainly be better to have the age groups mixed. Um, uh, I think there's – uh, I mean, just based on first principles, you would think that the the wisdom of the elders can be beneficial to the younger generation. Um, they can serve as role models uh, and and likewise, for the older folks, being around younger people is gets them moving more and uh, so i you know I, I, um, and many cultures have this as kind of a um, an established part of their culture it 's sort of some-
0: the extended family.
1: Exactly. And I think that we've unfortunately lost that in most parts of of the U.S.
0: And that uh, experience in Baltimore ties in a little bit with uh, this purpose of life that we'll be getting into later on. But uh, let's look at uh, perhaps the most difficult of your four pillars of well-being to grasp right away, and that's insight
1: yeah so insight is really about um uh insight into this strange entity that we call our self um so uh you know what does it mean to uh um, to have a self uh and we use personal pronouns um and um uh we often uh Use them in interesting ways. So like, for example, referring to emotions, we might say, I am sad. Um, and we can ask the question, well, what does that really mean when we say I am sad? Is it really all of me that's sad? Every, every cell in my body is sad or every part of my mind is sad? Where, where, what are the boundaries between myself and not myself? Um, and we begin to ask questions about this, and we begin to understand the, uh, the thoughts and the expectations and the beliefs that together somehow constitute this entity that we call me or myself or, um, or I. And, um, uh, and that helps to loosen the grip that these beliefs and expectations and thoughts have, because when we approach the world, we you know we're not we're not seeing the world directly, we're not hearing the world directly. It's all getting filtered through this entity that is constructed um, uh, over years based on our experience, uh, and it is this entity that we call ourselves. Uh, and so, uh, um, insight is really about gaining insight into that n- into the nature of ourself
0: know thyself but a tall order
1: it's a tall order yeah it is a tall order but you can begin to get a glimpse of this um by uh um uh, beginning to uh intentionally reflect on it with curiosity and uh As we were sharing earlier, one way we often do this is to uh, invite a person to imagine what it might be like for them to respond to a situation if they had a different set of beliefs and expectations. Uh, And can you envision how you might respond differently to, for example, some challenge? Uh, You might have a challenge at work or at home with um, with your kids, with your spouse, um, imagine if you approached it with a different set of beliefs and expectations. How might that change how you respond? And it, it, I think, very quickly helps people appreciate that indeed we do have these beliefs and expectations that operate all the time, but we're typically not aware of it. And so what the Insight is about, it's really um, the process of bringing to the fore what is operating under the hood all the time. And when we have some more awareness of that, we can get a little distance from that, and that can be really liberating. And we think it's really important for resilience especially um, because resilience we define as the – at least in part, the rapidity with which we recover from adversity. People who recover quickly from challenges are more resilient – um, and we can recover more quickly if we don't hold on to it as, as belonging to ourself, so to speak. When we can loosen that grip, we can recover more quickly.
0: I would think it could be a little difficult for some people, especially in the more difficult parts of life. I guess I'm thinking of adolescents in particular, to, uh, to get out of self like that without kind of losing who they are. And, and in order to have any kind of forward motion, don't you have to have some
1: sense of who you are and what you want? Exactly. And so one of the fascinating questions is, you know, in this framework, there are these four pillars, awareness, connection, insight, and purpose. And likely they don't emerge at the same points in development. Awareness and connection we think are there from the start in life. But insight and purpose likely come on much later. Uh, and come on um, uh, during or just after adolescence. Uh, and so uh, you're absolutely right. I think you need to develop some sense of self. We we need a sense of self in order to navigate in the world. It's not bad to have a sense of self. Um, if we didn't have it, we, we would really be uh, at risk and compromised. Indifferent
0: and, to everything
1: exactly uh, so we need it but what is important for well-being is not to be hijacked by it not to not to be um, completely fused with it um, uh, and when we can have some awareness of it when we can understand how it is affecting uh, our interpretation of the world we can uh, have it be more permeable and and um, uh, porous which gives us a greater resilience. Exactly.
0: We're running through these. There's obviously a lot more to these four pillars, but we'll be looking at at the fourth one when we return in a moment. This is University of the Air. I'm Norman Gilliland, back with Richard Davidson, who is telling us about what might be called the four pillars of well-being. And these are aspects of uh, the human makeup that uh, provide for a sense of well-being, or at least are the keys to that kind of well-being. They include awareness and connection and insight into oneself. And then maybe one of the easier ones to identify, to analyze, to measure is purpose in life. We hear about that a lot with uh, retirees going from, you know, very fulfilling or at some Times, even overly demanding job that uh, uh, controls much of their thinking and their energy, and then suddenly they retire, and the first day they paint the picnic table, and then what? Purpose in life. Where is it?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, this is a really important question, and it's important for retirees, as you point out, but it's also important at other stages of life, and I'll, I'll give some examples of that in a minute. But, um, uh, uh, in, you know, it's important to think about purpose not necessarily as connected with one's job, but, you know, we can often we, – we can also ask, for example, a person, you know, had a job where he or she was really invested in – well, wh- why are they doing that kind of work in the first place? And, you know, with just a few questions, you can quickly get to a, a deeper, even deeper sense of purpose – um, uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, often it involves helping other people to um, uh, accomplish their their tasks. You know, someone um, who's a banker might say, "Well, you know, I my my purpose is to be a good business person to earn money." Well, why why do you need to earn money? Well, um, I need to earn money to support my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and you know, even in a case where a person is earning way more than he or she needs to support their family, well, they may be giving away money philanthropically and helping all kinds of causes and so um, you know very quickly you can find um, a purpose which what we what psychologists have called is self transcendent that is it goes beyond your simply what exactly goes beyond your immediate needs, and that is uh, really key because self-transcendent purpose is something that is strongly connected to well-being and also is strongly connected, and again, we go back to a theme that's been present in our conversation here, it also is important for physical health. In fact, data show that among people who are 70 years and older, purpose in life is the single most important psychological predictor of longevity, the single most important. You hear that
0: anecdotally, and you're saying that it's also supported uh, methodically.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: And what might that purpose in life be? How do you, if you're if you're that banker and you retire, or you're a policeman and you retire, or any number of other positions and suddenly you're not doing that, or even if you're, a, let's say you're a student and your job in college is to graduate, and suddenly you're open in the job market, what do you do to redirect yourself and get that sense of purpose?
1: Yeah, and so and this is where uh, identifying um, self-transcendent a self-transcendent purpose, and and connecting to your core values is so important. So for a retiree, it may be spending time with their family. Uh, It may be being out in nature uh, and connecting to uh, uh, a sense of going beyond oneself in terms of the the environment, really, um, we were talking earlier about awareness, smelling the flowers, um, and really appreciating nature. there are so many opportunities um, for connecting to this. and uh, But, you know, for some people it requires a reminder because it's so easy to get caught up in all of the stimuli to which we are bombarded on a daily basis that we can lose sight of this. One of the things that we found during COVID, we, we've done a lot of work with educators and um, public school teachers primarily in the K-12 through 12 space – and um, that was a profession that was and still is really hurting for many different reasons. Um, uh, you know, during COVID, they they needed to depart from their usual mode of instruction. Many of them had kids at home. Uh, it was just a highly stressful time. Uh, and uh, one of the things we found when we were working to train well-being among the educators is they really – Um, glommed on to the purpose um, module, the purpose component especially. And what we found is that the invitation to simply reflect on their sense of purpose in becoming teachers in the first place, if they can do that even for a minute or two before they begin their workday, it was an elixir for their soul. Um, It really helped to remind them why they became a teacher, and many of these teachers reported to us that they lost their sense of purpose during COVID. Uh, and they, Even
0: if they were doing um, distance education.
1: Yeah, they just were so overwhelmed by the challenges of everyday life that they weren't reflecting on this. And just spending one or two minutes with this intentional reflection was, um, gave them a, a sense of vitality to help navigate the other adversities that they were experiencing.
0: Now, this starts to get into the area that uh, I know underlies much of what you do, Richard, but we haven't mentioned it specifically yet, and that is meditation.
1: Well, so there are simple secular meditation practices for each of these four pillars of well-being to strengthen awareness, connection, insight, and purpose. Um, And uh, we've actually... Uh, we have uh, um, affiliated with our university center a nonprofit um, corporation, a 501c3 called Healthy Minds Innovations, and we have um, created a uh, a well-being program to train each of these four pillars of well-being, and we've put it into a mobile app called the Healthy Minds Program. It's available uh, uh, wherever you get apps. And it's totally free, Uh, and it's the only app that's totally free and the only app that is actually evidence-based of its kind. And um, the New York Times Wirecutter did a piece on the three best meditation apps for 2023, and ours was named as one of the three. And what's yours called? It's called the Healthy Minds Program. So uh, for listeners out there, please... Um, download it and let us know what you think. And, again, it's completely and totally free, which is why I feel um, fine about um, doing a little self-promotion. It's really to be beneficial, and we're not getting a penny from it.
0: And this app, or any app, but let's say your app in particular, how does it work? I mean, are we just going to tap into that and see a text that advises us how to meditate, or what does it do? Is it interactive?
1: So it's, it's audio-guided. Um, And we do audio guided for a very specific reason. You don't have to look at anything. And in fact, you don't have to take any time out of your day to meditate. You can do this while you're engaged in other activities of daily living.
0: That's not multitasking?
1: No, because um, uh, it's not multitasking because it's, it's an invitation to do those activities with more intention. Um, so you're still totally paying attention to what you're doing. And it's just occasional auditory reminders um, to do whatever you're doing, but do it with intention, do it with awareness, but also bring values into it. Um, uh, where, So, for example, before you start washing your dishes, spend 30 seconds reflecting on how this may be beneficial to other members of your family. Um, and then wash the dishes. Uh, and, and all you're doing is washing the dishes, but you're coloring it with this background of uh, generosity and altruism.
0: So these things, uh, these pillars obviously overlap because if you're talking about purpose in life, uh, part of achieving that sense of purpose in life would come from uh, connection. In other words, if I say... Richard, you're doing a great job washing those dishes. We appreciate it, and it's a real service, and we love looking at clean plates. That's working both of those pillars. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. They're all interrelated, uh, uh, but they also are distinct. And um, one of the cool things we have in our app is a, uh, a three-second or maybe four-second measure where you can actually – Um, At the very beginning, you get this, and we measure where you stand on each of these four pillars. And you can actually track your progress. And every 28 days, the app will give you this measurement tool again so that you can track how you're doing.
0: And the sense of uh, progress is part of our well-being, I assume. Everybody wants to be, in effect, promoted.
1: Yeah, and it, it's like, um, uh, you know, it's like uh, an equivalent of tracking your steps for your well-being.
0: <laughs> I have a watch that does that, but I try to ignore it. <laughs> but uh, we're calling this conversation well-being and education. So what's the role of education in all of these Pillars of wellness, well being that we've been talking about?
1: Yeah, it's a great question and it can be answered in many different ways. Let me start by saying that um, there's a famous uh, passage in William James's two volume tome, The Principles of Psychology, that was published in 1890. Uh, he has a whole chapter on attention, and in that chapter, he talks about the education of attention. And he said, if we can figure that out, it would be the education par excellence. Uh, And um, uh, with regard to awareness uh, uh, and methods to train awareness, those are methods to educate attention. And we strongly believe that this is something that needs to be incorporated into our regular school curricula uh, in the you know, from K through college. And what form would it take? So um, there are many different ways to educate attention, but one, you know, simple way through the um, through a simple meditation practice is paying attention to your breathing. As long as you're alive, you're breathing. So this is something you can do anywhere, anytime. Uh, we're always breathing, uh, and you don't need to... You don't need anything. You don't need. You don't need to sit in any special posture to be you, aware of your breathing. Exactly. You don't need to be uh, in any special context. Um, you can be aware of your breathing when it's noisy. You can be aware of your breathing when it's quiet. Doesn't matter. Uh, and
0: this awareness then does what for
1: you? It, it strengthens the muscle of attention. And so, you know, let's be frank: breathing is. Kind of boring. It's, uh, uh, and if you can actually pay attention to this um, thing that is, you know, pretty boring. Not
0: something you have to think about much. Right.
1: Then it really – it turns out it generalizes. If we can pay attention to something that's boring, um, we're even more likely to be able to pay attention to something that's a little more interesting. Uh, And so this is simply a training ground to strengthen the muscle of attention. That's all it is. Uh, And uh, it works. There's there's just, you know, hundreds now of scientific studies to show that this kind of thing can change our brain and can actually – not all of us are going to become attentional athletes, you know, Olympic athletes of attention. But we can all improve. And that's clear.
0: How many of these ideas – have you picked up from the Dalai Lama?
1: Uh, Quite a few. I mean, the Dalai Lama is uh, a a major inspiration for me. Uh, I've known him for um, more than uh, 30 years. And uh, um, before COVID, I was typically seeing him three or four times a year. I just was uh, in India in the fall and was with him for three weeks. And that was actually the first time I saw him since COVID.
0: And so let's have a quick visit with the Dalai Lama at this point. Is he practicing this mindfulness and obviously connectivity because he is very much involved in the world community? But uh, the state of his thinking now as he is in his mid-80s,
1: uh he is 87 he'll turn 88 in july
0: and and what is the state of his thinking at this point in his life what what are his frontiers we might ask
1: um those are great questions i think he's really focused on this idea of um of common humanity uh that um national boundaries languages all of that are artificial boundaries that humans have somehow imposed in the world. Um, nation, you know, these nations are, you know, that we've created nations. A lot,
0: a lot of the boundaries are very arbitrary. Very I mean, arbitrary. Many of us would agree to that. I think.
1: Yeah, and and that at 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 its core, every human being is basically the same. Um, and, uh, uh, and this is uh, a theme that he's really emphasizing a lot. I think he's been quite concerned about the um, increased polarization in the world and, um, uh, uh, and a focus on our common humanity, uh, he thinks, can be beneficial in helping us to overcome some of those artificial divisions, which um, artificial they might be, but they've led to war, Uh, and other kinds of devastation. Which can't be overcome easily. Which Right. So, uh, you know, he's continuing to speak out on these issues, to teach um, uh, and do the best he can. And he, you know, he is someone with an 87-year-old body, uh, and so he doesn't get around in the same way that he used to.
0: Does he believe, and are your premises underlying the four pillars of well-being, that uh, people are born with an inclination to do good?
1: I think he does. And I think that the science overwhelmingly supports him. Um, uh, There's no question that human beings are born to be good, in my view. uh, and you know, it's not to say that there there there's not negative stuff that can happen, but that if given a choice, uh, a um, a young human will choose the pro social alternative. And we're not talking here about a small statistical deviation. We're talking about one hundred percent of young infants when given a choice between a pro social encounter and an antisocial encounter. One that is cooperative and warm hearted versus selfish and aggressive, 100% of infants will choose the pro social alternative.
0: A fascinating statistic to leave things with. Richard Davidson, it has been very illuminating, and we will look for further research and verification of the values of these four pillars of well being and the role of education that uh, plays under them,
1: too. Thank you so much, Norman. Pleasure to be here with you.
0: I'm Norman Gilliland. This is University of the Year.